You know, every time I hear that song, The Great I Am, I, I mean, just like today, it brought tears to my eyes. And, and as powerful as that song is, when, when the believers leave this world and when we're standing or sitting or kneeling or just <laughs> wailing at the feet of Jesus, just know that the praises are going to be even more powerful than that. And there's going to be, there is a great day that awaits every Christian um, as we leave this earth and there's no longer any shame or sin. There's nothing hindering our worship of God. I and mean, we can just bow at the feet of our Savior and just bask in His glory. It's going to be such a powerful day. Yeah, the scriptures that I want us to open up to, and we're going to jump right in today, is into John 4. And I want you to know that that although when it, when it seems like, even songs like The Great I Am, it seems like there's just this magnitude of God that we clearly see on display. Also, I, I want us to see sometimes in the Scriptures when we read it, it seems like it's very flat. Like, like what Jesus did really didn't show His power and His glory. And I'm so thankful that as we're finishing up this series, this is what we're going to see. is It's the exact opposite of that. Because when Jesus brings about this miracle, automatically people are changed. That it isn't just this miracle in passing to wow people. There was automatically people, after they observed this great miracle of Jesus, they had faith in Him and they believed in Him. And the influence of that miracle brought, brought them to the personhood of Jesus. And they got to see, wow, there's something incredible about this Jesus. And because of that, they put their faith in Him. Not only the individual who, or not only the the person who was asking for the miracle, but also the extended family. So we're going to be in John 4, and we're going to start in verse 43. Let me give you a little bit of the context, because oftentimes in, in the Scriptures, like today, we, we have to get a running start to understand where we are. What has happened so far in John 4 is Jesus had just spent two days with, with some Samaritans, and specifically the Samaritan woman, the woman who had multiple husbands and the it's the woman at the well where Jesus has this interaction and she, her life had been a wreck and Jesus meets her at a time when uh, she shouldn't have been at the well and he shouldn't have been at the well and he shouldn't have been talking to her. And, and Jesus breaks down all of these, this facade uh, and just the cultural bias and, and just the stuff that was going on there. And he meets her and her life has radically changed. And then she is, is curious because she sees that there's something special about Jesus, that he's prophetic because he knows her life and he's never met her before. And yet he speaks directly about her life. And then she, she goes back and she's like, well, you obviously are a prophet. And, and, and I know that, that you, being a Jewish man, that, you, um, that, that you're, you worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this just amazing thing a couple of times when he's talking to this to the Samaritan woman, and he says to her, he says that there's going to be a day and time to where no longer is the worship of God going to be bound to a temple or a tabernacle, that the worship of God, we're, that we as worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And as followers of Jesus, we are indeed a fulfillment of what Jesus was saying in this time because the Holy Spirit has been imparted to you. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit has been imparted to you, which gives you the ability to truly worship in spirit spirit and in truth. So he had just had this amazing thing that happened. Had spent two days with them, and now she has gone off to now share this good news with her family. And now Jesus finds another interaction with the family. And, and this is what 
happens in verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home or in his own country. This is uh, where in the scriptures that I touched on last week about familiarity breeds. What was the last word? Contempt. This is uh, the scriptural connection with this. Uh, So then in verse 45, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they uh, also had been there. So what it's presumed is what had happened at the Passover feast is when Jesus drove the, the cheaters out of the temple, when they were, the, the scoundrels were in there and they're trying to cheat, cheat people uh, as they had the table and, uh, and, and they were making people, people would go in there to buy some sacrifice and they would gouge the people and Jesus drove them out of the temple. Remember that story? One of the times in the scripture we think, oh, Jesus, he was just the, he was the passive shepherd and he, we see his fierceness and just the, how, he, how he is a warrior, the Lord is a warrior and he drives these money changers out of the temple. So it's believed that that's what's being mentioned here. So they had seen Jesus with some authority um, and now we're going to see something else about him in verse 46 once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. Now, we started out this series talking about the first miracle. This is the second miracle that we know of. The first one was when Jesus turned the water into wine. And now we see the connection. We're bookending this series. And now we see this mention in the scripture. So now this royal official a, a Roman official, we don't know for sure of his title other than he was a royal official. A lot of people have opinions on maybe what he did, but we're not absolutely sure. Verse 47 says this, When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, or from, uh, from Judea, excuse me, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Verse 48, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. You see, now this Roman or excuse me, this this Roman royal official had gone to see Jesus. He's at a desperate time. And I'm telling I'm just telling you, he didn't go there as a royal official. He went there as a dad. So now his child is in danger. He believes the child is about to die. And it's a son. And this is how Jesus replies in verse 50. You may go, your son will live. So he says, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. It was about a 20 to 25 mile walk. So now he automatically, he hears Jesus. He goes to Jesus, asking Jesus for a miracle. Jesus says, your son will live. And now he automatically, he doesn't debate with Jesus, and he doesn't say, Jesus, come with me. Now you see that Jesus is even separate from, from even space as we know it, meaning spatial, uh, the spatial existence. He says, no, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word. He believed Jesus. He, he operated in a measure of faith, and he turned around and went away. He didn't debate with Jesus. If Jesus could do it, he believed Jesus could do it. So the man took Jesus at his word and he departed while he was still on his way. He, his servants met him with the news, the news that his son was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, he said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact 
time at which Jesus has said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. So now this man comes to Jesus. He's I believe no longer a royal official. We're going to see in just a few moments that he had some presumptions because of the lifestyle and because of the culture, the Greco-Roman culture, and that would influence him. But he didn't come as a royal official. He just came as a dad, as a desperate dad asking for a miracle for his son. His son obviously had a fever, and he believed that his son was going to die. So he goes to the one person he believes that can heal him, and he operates. He not only asks for the miracle, but then when Jesus, he says, go back home, your son may live. He doesn't debate with Jesus. He just turns back, and he heads back home. And now this, this servant of the royal official, he meets him on the way, and he says that your son is well. Would we agree that this is a miracle? But also, we look at the back part, the last part of this passage, and we see that not only did the, did the royal official believe, also, who else believed? His family. His family believed. They had all witnessed a miracle. That they had all, they'd all experienced this firsthand. It wasn't secondhand, thirdhand. It wasn't, well, I read it in a book. It wasn't this. It was like, wow, this just happened in front of me. And because of the miracle of Jesus, seeing the power of Jesus released to heal this young boy, they all believed. There's something that is amazing that is supposed to happen when somebody commits their life to Jesus. That person is then a spokesperson of the gospel. And we're either a good one or a bad one. And you can be the determiner of where you sit right now. And now this man believes, and his whole family believes. Jesus just does this miracle, and now the whole family has changed. This is influence, is it not? And yet, in our day and age, we, we've just become kind of numb to the reality that we're supposed to be people who are telling others about Jesus. And yet we become like the Samaritan woman where we think, well, we experience God when we gather in this place or in community group or Bible study or book study. Well, these are, these are areas like the Samaritan woman who thought, well, I know, but you worship in, in, in the temple. That's where, and that is the place where, where, where you worship. You, all you Jews, worship. And then Jesus, he changes things. And he says that worship is not confined to a, a place. Worship is in a person. And that that person will worship in spirit and in truth. So we, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus, there's not an option if we are, oh, I just, there isn't an option if we should be sharing or not. We have all received the great commission. I, as your pastor, received the, this, received the same commission that you did. At the end of Matthew 28, starting in verses 18 through 20, there isn't like a caveat that says, Paid ministers, go therefore, paid ministers. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, go therefore, people who have their lives cleaned up. It doesn't say, go therefore, people who are extroverts. Look, look for yourself, it's not there. 
What is implied is when a person gives their life to Jesus, they are automatically to be on mission for Jesus. Telling people about the good news of Jesus. People who are, are not only living the gospel, but speaking the gospel to those around us. And truthfully, I know that many of us have good intentions. They say, well, I believe the gospel and I'm just going to show the world. I'm just going to show them that I, that I believe in Jesus and they're going to see it by my good deeds. That's simply not true. That's just simply not true. Because if you look at people who are, who are close to God and far from God, when it comes to just the general kind of thing and how generous people are, there are people far from the faith who are really, really generous and kind and not saved. So that's not enough. We have to use words. There has to be, uh, there has to be a life surrendered to Jesus. Your witness is telling of who you were when Jesus met you and what He has done since. Your witness, you and I are to be giving a witness to the event of our salvation, to the events that happened after our salvation and our discipleship to Jesus, our sanctification to Jesus as He's changing us from the inside to the outside. That is our witness. And we, again, are either a good witness or a poor witness. And there is no middle ground. There is no, I don't know. We're either a positive witness or a negative witness for Jesus. We're either doing it or we're not. So your witness is telling of who you were when Jesus met you and what He's done since. This just demystifies much of what we think about the Christian walk. What, where were you when Jesus found you? And what has he done in your life since? And this can begin a conversation with somebody specifically if you are like this man and now his family has believed. The, the, you see, there's already a relationship that's formed. Now, much of what I'm going to talk about today is if you already have a relationship that's formed, how can you share your faith with someone who is around you when you already have a relationship with them? You see, I believe this is true also. The danger for most Christians is not being fake, but being overly careful with the truth. Just enough to be real, but not honest enough to cut to the heart. So it's, it's not being fake. It's just being overly careful with the truth. So much so that you're like... Ah, I'm just going to I'm going to tell I'm going to put this post on my Facebook page or I'm going to put this post on Instagram. I'm going to dabble in it a little bit. I'm going to make sure I put a cross on my desk. I'm going to wear a cross necklace. So somebody's going to look at me and say that I'm a Christian or somebody's going to assume that I'm a Christian. And, and we do all these things. And, and not, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but it's just simply not enough. And I believe that sometimes we do those things and we think, well, I've done my Christian mission because if I've got a cross shirt on, if I've got a, a shirt with some scripture on it, then obviously I'm a Christian. They're going to tell. And you know what? That, that may work in, in a closed third world country where Christians are dying and being martyred for their faith, but that doesn't work in America. That just doesn't work. Because... For us, it takes more than just simply presenting ourselves in that way or, or, or even maybe talking about our faith but being so bland and so, 
So just kind of very thin, where we're not completely vulnerable. It's just enough to be real, but yet not enough to cut to the heart. It's said like this. It's saying, well, Jesus loves you, but not talking about, about the measure of love, if that even though we were far from God, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and indeed, we are all sinners. So it's on one way of saying, well, God is love. There are many people who are far from God who, who believe in all sorts of universal truths, and they say the same thing, well, God is love, so all paths you know, ultimately lead to God because God is love. Ultimately, we have to get to the point where when we share our faith with other people, we have to get beyond the, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to, to cut to the heart. We have to tell people about why the cross mattered. The cross mattered is because people, people had violated God's law of loving Him and loving other people, and that these people, all people, have a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, we, we deserve condemnation. We deserve death, eternal separation from God. But what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me and for other people who are still not followers of Him is paying the payment, taking the punishment, the brunt of what we deserved, but He doing that for us. This cuts to the heart. So absolutely, God is love. 1 John 4 says that, but also God's love on display is Jesus Christ on the cross. Why did He go to the cross? Because of our sin. That cuts to the heart. It takes more than just saying, oh, God is love and having a Christian shirt or, or doing good, quote-unquote, moral things. Getting, we have to get past the facade of just being real to really tell about what's happening and how far people are from God if we ever want to evangelize them. See, part of this, too, of what you see is, is just, just enough to be real, but not enough to cut to the heart. This is just good old-fashioned Southern religion. That's what this is. That I'm not going to step on your toes. I want to be kind. I mean, we're a be-kind culture. I don't want to step on your toes. I just, I'm going to be nice because, you know, we're, we're in the South, Southern hospitality. That's what we have to do. And I don't want to step on your toes too much because, you know, then that just wouldn't be right. I would much rather step all over your toes so that you come to a, a believing and knowing relationship with Jesus Christ than to see you condemned because of your sin. Which one is a greater measure of love? Being careful to tiptoe around the truth or telling somebody the truth about themselves so that they can know Jesus and they can be in heaven one day. So that they can experience eternal life. So that they can be changed. So they can believe like the royal official, and his family. Which one is a greater measure of love? Being careful with the truth, so careful that we don't want to offend anyone, or telling somebody the truth about God's love, but then also the greatest display of love, that being Jesus. And why did he die? For them, for us, for salvation's sake, so that we could be right with God, so that we would glorify God. You see, the gospel is first grasped with the heart before it's grasped with the mind. Many times we settle with the mind and we just pound the mind, the mind, the mind, the mind, the mind. We try and use logic. We try and use other things. The gospel is first grasped in the heart. In the heart. It was the fact in the Old Testament 
the gospel had been shared over and over and over about how God is, he is slow to anger and He's gracious and He's merciful and He's loving and He's kind and all of the, the messianic prophecies, all of which were pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. There was so much that was going on in the mind, but it did not touch their heart. Their heart was not availed to God. Their hearts were closed to God. Which is why it says in, in Jeremiah that, that those who are going to be in the new covenant, those who are be changed by the gospel, those people would have a heart of stone that was removed and there would be a heart of flesh that was replaced. This is why. A heart to love God and to serve God and to love other people and serve other people. And apart from that exchange that happens when we surrender to Jesus, it's simply impossible. So the boldness in my message today and what I'm inspiring you to have is a boldness in your witness and your message today doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God within you. That the Spirit empowers you and I to do more than what we can. Because without the Spirit's help, I don't care how brave, how courageous you think you are, men and women. Without the Spirit's help, you and I are just scared boys and girls. That's all we are. But with the Spirit's help, we can have the, the strength and courageousness of Joshua. We, we, can, we can step outside of our fears like Moses. We can have an influence like Abraham if we step outside of ourselves and give up control to God, relinquishing our small story and embracing the big story of God that He has on offer when we tell others about Him. See, just because a person says that they're a Christian doesn't mean they actually are. You know that. Because many of you have been here over the last two years. And, and I have, I've made my way back to the simple truth over and over and over. Let me give you a, a quick history lesson starting back with the, the greatest generation, the World War II generation. You see, that generation, they believed that there was a truth. I'm not saying that they were all saved, not at all, but they believed that there was a truth. Then they had kids, and to that generation, they started questioning truth. This would be the Vietnam era, some of you perhaps, in your generation. And then the Vietnam era, they had children, and that would be within my generation. And then we just said, well, that we just started not only questioning truth, but then we said, well, there is no absolute truth. And now we live in a day and age where it's the two generations that are following. And now will they say, well, just know your truth. So now we've, we've drifted so far away to where now it's a belief that you can just, you just know your truth. And if we simply lay down with that and pretend that, oh, everybody has their own truth, what we're denying is the gospel. We're making Jesus Christ out to be a liar. Because Jesus says, I am the way. What's the next one? I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if, if you and I, if we claim to know Jesus and yet we, we accept what's being force-fed into this culture right now, that you just know your own truth, which means the truth is subjective to you, to your experiences, to your knowledge, to your family of origin, to where you live, to what you observe through social media, however it is that you're influenced. If Christians lay down and we accept that, we're making Jesus out to be a liar. And if that didn't touch your heart, maybe you still have a heart of stone. 
and not the heart of flesh. If that didn't touch your heart, maybe for you, you don't have the Holy Spirit within your heart. And indeed, perhaps, you have accepted the gospel intellectually, but not in your heart. And it's only in your heart that is one truly saved. If your salvation is based on personal feelings, dreams, visions, voices, completing religious tasks, or any other fleshly evidence, then I want you to know that you're on dangerous ground. If your salvation is based on, well, I, just, I feel safe today, then you're on dangerous ground. Or, or your dream or your vision or some, some ecstatic experience that you've had, even though maybe you were part of a group that was like, I had this ecstatic ex- spiritual experience. If it's based off of that, I want you to know that perhaps you're, you're on dangerous ground. I want to share with you some, some good news also. And 1 John 5, we're actually going to come back to this main passage, but let's go to 1 John 5. Let's also see what this looks like through John's writing. 1 John 5, starting in verse 9 through 12. That's what it says in verse 9. We accept, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which He has given about His Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about His Son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What is said in verse 9 is is we accept man's testimony. You may be thinking, well, how do I do this? I would say this. There are times where we accept, and we accept by faith, we accept that other people are going to do what they're supposed to do. When You drove here today, or perhaps when you go to leave here, you're going to be driving right down 80, going to a restaurant, or perhaps going to your home, and you're going to be right next to a vehicle. You're believing, you're putting trust in that person that they're not going to go all, you know, like ram you and just run you off the road. You're just believing, and you're putting some measure of faith in them that they're not just going to think, oh, today's demolition derby day, you know, and I'm just going to run this car off the road. If you go to a restaurant, you are putting some faith and trust in the person who's making your food. Because you don't go to a restaurant to go run back in the kitchen, do you? And put everything together. You put some faith and trust in that person. So we already trust man's testimony. Another example, when you go to the doctor and they give you a diagnosis or or they tell you, hey, we we think you have a sinus infection. Okay, doc, thanks. You're trusting that through his experience and education, that you indeed have a sinus infection or whatever the case may be, and then he writes you a prescription. So you're putting some faith and belief in the doctor in that moment that, hey, he knows what he's talking about. She knows what she's talking about. She or he wrote me this script and sent it to the pharmacist. So then when you go to the pharmacist, you're putting some faith and trust in the pharmacist, aren't you? Right? Not one time have you gone back there 
with the you know, with all the people at the pharmacy uh, behind the window and gathered all the pills and put them together for yourself. And probably not one time have you looked at every individual pill to know exactly what it is that you have because you would have no idea what it is, right? Because it's white and it has a number on it. You may be able to find it out through Google, but I'm pretty sure that you probably don't open all those pills up every time you get it. You put, you see where I'm going with this. There are times where we accept man's testimony, for sure. And what it says in verse 9 and 10 is, sure, there are times where we accept man's testimony. I can just tell you, hey, um, you know, God is good. I can, I can do that. And, and there may be times where people trust my testimony, but God's testimony is more powerful. They may be able to, to, to go against me and say, yeah, I just don't know if I believe that. That's fine. But yet, when the Holy Spirit of God draws somebody to salvation, that is not only, that's not, excuse me, a man's testimony, that's God's testimony of the goodness of God, the salvation of God, the, the condemnation and the freedom from sins. So it's God's testimony is, is of higher authority than man's. Also, It's not all we see here. It says that this testimony of God, which has been given about His Son, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart, meaning that anyone who is truly saved already has a testimony of the Son in their heart. The Spirit of God, as it, as it produces change in us, that then our life, through the evidence of the Spirit, bears that fruit, and then other people can experience that, but that's God's work in a believer. And it's God that draws somebody to salvation. Certainly, the, the way our life looks, it makes a difference. We need to display the gospel. We also need to speak the gospel. Verse 10, anyone who believes in the Son has the testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about His Son. And this is the testimony. This is the truth. This is a truth that is absolute. This is a truth that is, is not a subjective truth. This is a truth that is not bound to generations. This is a truth that began even before the, the birth of Jesus. This was a truth that was evident in the Old Testament. This is a truth that Jesus' life lived in perfection. This is a truth that was being completed on the cross. And this is a truth that then, because of the release of the Holy Spirit after the resurrection in Acts 1.8, then was released. This is a truth that could be lived out and other people could see in a believer. So I'll say it in this way. You don't need to wait. You don't need to wait for this eternal life because a Christian, if they have this testimony of God in their heart, you don't have to wait for a further day to experience it. Again, you don't need to, to work for it. You don't need to work for your salvation because of the finished work of the cross. And you don't need to worry about your salvation because Jesus keeps our salvation secure. Seeing will not always lead to believing, but believing will always lead to seeing. 
Seeing will not always lead to believing. Other people may look at you and they may say, whoa, that person's different. Their life's different. Uh, They may see some difference about us. And and just by them seeing your life, it does not always mean that they're going to be believing in God. But once a person crosses that line of faith, when God changes, it starts to change them and they have a salvation that's rooted in Jesus, not their own works, not religious duty, not religious ecstatic experiences, but in the finished work of Jesus, and we settle with that, then what we will see is seeing will not always lead to believing, but believing will always lead to seeing. And that person, once their belief is rooted in Jesus and they've accepted the salvation from Jesus, it will always lead to seeing. They will see things as they really are. You and I in this day and age should be seeing things as they really are. We should be seeing that Christians are actually living in opposition to the rest of the world around us. If you don't see that we as Christians live in opposition, even here in the deep south, then something is wrong with your eyes. And I would say this, something is wrong with your faith, if you have that at all. Seeing will not always lead to believing, but believing will always lead to seeing. When this exchange happens and somebody gets saved from their sin, the Holy Spirit resides within this person. That person is changed from the inside out. As God takes out the the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh, and the Holy Spirit of God resides within this person, it leads to seeing things as they really are. Seeing the, the lost people around us. Seeing that our family is far from God, it takes the, the, the parents, the parental blinders off to think, well, they were raised in church, uh, you know, and they, and they gave a confession of faith a long time ago. But if there's no fruit in their life, you should be seeing that perhaps what they made was a false confession. Instead of just thinking, well, they're good people. Instead of just seeing, well, they're good people that I work with. But do they know Jesus? Have they been changed like the royal official and the royal official's son, or son, but also the whole family? Have they been changed? Are they giving a testimony to the goodness and the glory of God? If they're not giving a testimony to the goodness and glory of God, you and I have to ask the question, I'm not seeing what it says that they believe in. And Jesus said that you will know them by their fruit. That you will know true believers by their fruit. Not just by the words that they speak. And I'm so thankful that it doesn't just say by the words that they speak. Because then we maybe we would just think, well, wow, 90% of the people in Lawrence County are saved. I don't need to evangelize anybody. But it's not just by the way we speak. It's the way that we live. We should be seeing things from Jesus' point of view. That our lives, sure, they are a display of the gospel, but we have to give the testimony of God. And when we are giving the testimony of God and we're sharing the gospel with the lost people around us, what that's doing is we are praising and glorifying God, which is the highest value point. And we're obedient to God. And we're sharing the truth with others. We're obedient to the Great Commission. We're doing what it is that God says for us to do. 
So instead of us just living up to God in our own vertical relationship with God or living in with other people, living in community, and I'm being changed, but now we're living the out. Remember the triangle last week? Now we're living the out, living on mission for God. And when we live on mission for God, not just with our, our deeds, but also in sharing it with our words, that is how we change a community. That is how you take the gospel message to those that are lost around you. And seeing will not always lead to believing. But believing will always lead to seeing. And you should be seeing the lostness that's around you. If, if you and I don't see the lostness that are, that's around us, it will lead us to disobedience to the Great Commission. Because we'll start believing, well, I don't need to share Christ with anyone. Back to John 4, verse, starting at verse 43. Jesus says this interesting thing in verse 48. And he, he, it seems a little displaced, perhaps, but it's really not. He says in verse 48, he says, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. At the general reading, it looks like he's scolding this man. But this message, I believe, is even bigger than this man because I believe this message is, is really speaking into the whole Jewish culture. Who just, they, all throughout the Old Testament, they, they didn't believe God and then they had to see a miraculous sign to believe. And now what Jesus is saying is, you people are no different than them. Unless you see a miraculous sign and wonder, you will never believe. But yet what we see with this, this royal official is although he has a cultural makeup before he comes to faith in Christ, he being a, a, just a, a Jewish man would have a certain way of living, a certain way of believing, or being around the, the Jewish people rather in that culture, would have a certain way of of believing and living, him being a, a Roman royal official, he would have a lot of carryovers. The, the, the Romans were very nationalistic. There's a bunch of reasons why. Because one of the reasons why is if you worked in the military for the, for the Romans, they gave you a plot of land, so it made you love country all the more. The, the Roman ruler, they considered him like somebody who's worthy of worship. If you think about what I just said, it's not that different than our culture today. We tend to worship whoever's in, in the White House, whether if we, if we align left or right, we tend to worship that person and then demonize the person who stands on the other side. Not that, that much different. So he steps beyond a lot of, of cultural bias that, that he would have observed around this Jewish lifestyle and also the Greco-Roman lifestyle. And he steps beyond that. And then we don't know how and all the details to how he comes to faith, but we know that he does because the Word of God says so. At the end of this passage, we see this very end. Verse 52, when he inquired as to the time when his son got Better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. 
Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus has said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. They had seen the miracle. We don't know how, how the message got around. We just know that they believed, that they possessed faith in Christ. And their lives were changed. Let me tell you about another life that was changed. There was a life that was changed this week at, at our student camp. There was a, a young man by the name of Casey who partnered with us. And he, he came with us to the camp and had a phenomenal time. And he was at first kind of cold and, and resistant to what was going on. But yet he experienced the same thing I'm talking about right now. And I had the opportunity of leading him to faith in Christ. But here's, here's the amazing thing of how it works or how it worked, and I believe how God works many, many times. I was, I was outside of the room when all of these things happened, but God was revealing to him the weight of his sin. And Casey was seeking me out, and I had no idea why. As a matter of fact, it was kind of a weird thing. I'm outside. One of the students came to me, and they said, hey, um, they said that, hey, two other students need to talk to you. I was like, okay. So I'm like, where are they? And they were over there, and I was like, it was... It, it, so it was Connor and Caden. I said, Connor and Caden need to see you. I said, okay. So I went and found Connor and Caden. And then Connor and Caden said, hey, Casey wants to see you. I'm like, whoa, where is this game going to end? Like, I don't even know what's happening here. Like, you just, you know, I'm like ping, ping, ping and all this. And then I look up and I just lock eyes with Casey. And Casey is like, he is talking to everybody who, who could point, who he thought could like point to me. So he looks up and he's talking to I believe it was, it was Natalie and Michelle at the back of the room. And then he looks up at me and, and tears are just rolling down. And he said, or I, I looked at him and I said, what's going on? And he said, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. Now, what did I do? Did I save him? No. God was, was already working inside of him. And all I did was share the scriptures. That's all I did. I just shared the scriptures. I presented the scriptures in, in, in the way and the, and the spirit of God was working already. And it just in the word verified the spirit and he gave his life to Jesus right then and there. It was it was an amazing miracle of God to, to even be a part of that. And now his life is radically changed. See, the reason why I tell you that story is not just because that's what happened this week, although that would be reason enough. I was just available. That's all it was. I was just available. And the Spirit was at work well before that I even knew. And the Spirit led him to me, led him to the Scriptures, led him to salvation. So when we talk about sharing our faith with other people, it doesn't all hinge on you. It doesn't hinge on you. God saves those who are lost when God providentially saves them. We just have to be available and we have to obey whatever it is that God is leading us to do. There are times where we will, we will share the gospel with words and, and with deeds and we want our life to be an example of the gospel and living for the glory of God. There's, there are times where we will have opportunity to share words like I did. 
But it doesn't rest on you. Because just like the story with Casey, the Holy Spirit was doing the work. It was so funny that after I had talked with him for a little bit and I shared that I was getting ready to share the scriptures and and he was just telling me like everything he was feeling and everything he was thinking. And I, and, and I looked at him. I said, well, man, I said, you're like leading yourself to Jesus like this. is like I, I was just there and I was just sharing a couple of scriptures. But God was just was doing all this work in his heart, and in his mind. And I was just simply there. And that's the way that God does it. That's the way that God does it. When we live out and we live on mission for Jesus, we're, do, we're just being obedient to our part and trusting that God is going to do his part. And trusting that maybe that our life could have the, the influence of what this miracle had. To where this young boy was saved. Uh, just it says the whole family believes. So I'm assuming that the son was saved and the parents were saved and whoever else was around. They believe and they're possessing faith. And the influence grows. When we surrender to Jesus, not only for our own salvation, but when we surrender to Jesus and saying, I'm going to be living on mission for you, Jesus. I want to be available. When we, when we go around and we see things as they are, that, that there is a, a lost world around us, a lost world that is in need of Jesus. When we start seeing the problems as they are, then we will then be in situations like I was where God is at work, and we just partner with Him there. If you don't know Jesus, and I would love for you, I would love for you to know Jesus, if, if there's something going on in your heart right now, and maybe what I've said has, has just been kind of a, a prick to your heart, and you're like, I just, I don't, you know, salvation, I don't even know that I'm saved. I want to talk to you at the end of the service. I don't want you to just get up and leave and pretend like nothing happened. This could be the last time that God pricks your heart. This could be the last time that God pricks your heart. And you could leave from this place. And you could just leave. And God can perhaps never prick your heart again. And you could walk away from this opportunity. And this could be the last one that God presents his gospel to you in such a profound way. I would love to talk with you at the end of the service if God is moving in your heart in this way. Can we pray together? Father, we, uh, we're so grateful that the Spirit is not bound to even disobedient believers or this lost world. We are, we are rejoicing in the fact that, God, you are the great I am, that you are still a miracle worker. We are rejoicing in the fact that, that Casey got saved. And he, he has gone from death to life. And he could tell you that if he were here right now. And God, I rejoice in, in the fact that we already saw evidence. As soon as he got saved, we could already see evidence. There was a, there was a complete change in his disposition. Because that heart of stone had been removed. And now you gave him a heart of flesh and the spirit residing within him. And God, we rejoice in the mighty work that you do with our students and our kids and our adults. God, help us. Give us wisdom and understanding and, and, and help us to obey and, and lead us to repentance when we disobey. And when we get off mission, God, remind us 
uh, and allow us to see the brokenness so that we can get back on mission to glorify you more and to bring more good to this world. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.